0: All right, so quick polling question. How many of you would say that the most soul-enriching, satisfying, enjoyable thing that you can do at church on a Sunday morning is to talk about politics? Raise your hand. Got one. Got a couple. How many of you would say that sounds awful? Today's going to suck. All right, so (laughs) here's the thing. All right, as soon as Amy said it, I was laughing because I could hear the, ugh. Is what we're doing today. But here's the thing, I can kind of soften a little bit. We are not so much talking about our politics as a culture. Maybe we'll get into that a little bit, but we're really dealing with the political structure of the nation of Israel. We're talking about Hebrew civics. <laughs> Ooh, that's going to be so exciting. But you know, here's the thing I'm going to say about this when it comes to Hebrew civics or kind of Jewish civics, uh, there are valuable lessons, I think, to be learned. And so, for me, going into this today, I'm actually really excited, uh, kind of amped up, because I do think there's some things that are really, really helpful. Because when you go through it and you see God's vision for all of this— you see from that, at least for us, sort of the character then of leaders that we should seek, and the values that we would want to see established inside of our politics, and even some of the outcomes that we should aspire to, because our heart as a people is to embrace God's heart for the world, which is to bring flourishing to all the families and all the nations of the earth, and all of that has value for us today, and so with that, I want to remind you, we have an app, and there are notes in the app that you can follow along with, but we're going to get praying, get right underway, got a lot of ground to cover, and so with all of that said, let's go ahead and pray together. Jesus, man, I ask you to help us be really awesome students today, to push aside whatever our biases is, or might be, or some of our presuppositions, and to absorb kind of your heart for building a culture for the sake of other cultures building a people to touch the lives of other people Uh, help us to learn that help us to be wise and prudent in what we do and so we look to you to guide us and to show us and to challenge us and certainly to mobilize us to your very best and so Jesus we love you and we thank you and we praise you this day in your good name amen all right So quick lightning round refresher We are in the fifth and final work of the Torah as it's called in the Old Testament The first five works of Moses were in that final work And that particular work has a unique focus It's called the second law in kind of its general understanding But I think that misses its heart because it's really not about doctrine building It's about nation building And what God wants to build as a nation is a people that are wise and intelligent, and from that they reveal the beauty of their God, and that changes the world. That's the heart of this. And so God wants a people who honor him, who give generously, who eradicate poverty, seek purity, establish equity, elevate spirituality, and advance love, mercy, and justness fairly. That's what we've seen thus far in this work. And all of that is not for their own selfish benefit. Us four shut the door, call it good. It's for them to be that kind of a people to touch all the other peoples around them. That's the heart's. And so this is a very radical enterprise That God is stitching together And if you're honest about it It's going to take generation On top of generation To accomplish the task If they're in fact willing to lean Into the hard stuff of this kind of design So this is a pilot nation And God is putting together Kind of a development plan Now in the Christian tradition We call it Deuteronomy In the Hebrew tradition They call it Daverim. And it's really about six key themes. It's the theme of Lord, love, listen, learn, life, and land. And those are all integrated. So the flourishing of the land is connected to the love and listening and learning of the Lord, and that's going to generate true, thriving life. So all of this kind of works in concert together. And I bring up this overview really quick because I think it's very easy for us, especially as Christians, when we look at the Hebrew Testament to just kind of read, read, read until we find a verse that we go, that's the pithy verse that I can make my memory verse of the day. And we kind of just look for the right tree, as opposed to we really trying to understand the forest. And so I think it's important, which is why we're only doing this series over seven weeks, that what we're trying to do is really see the forest and not just kind of lock in to any one individual tree. Because as nation building goes, there's layers. And that's what Moses is doing in his second speech in Deuteronomy. So the first speech was, hey, here's where we've come from. This is our history. Speech two is big. Right, And it's really about how we are to be now As we develop to move on into the future And so he deals with this, this set of themes then in layers Like concentric circles uh, right? So like the first circle is like the bullseye And that speech was all about We have ten commands and we have one pledge Our pledge is to love the Lord our God With all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength And that saturates everything we do When we wake up, when we go to bed Everything in between Whether it's in my heart, in my home, or in my community, that's the central focus. And so to have that pledge, they live out the 10 Commandments. That's the way they kind of practicalize their love of God and love of one another. That led into then his second speech, week three for us, which was not simply about the pledge and the laws, but it was really about the idea of worship. And that makes sense because worship is the spilling out of the first four Commandments with that heart of loving God, with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so we went through the things that are important in their worship, which is exclusivity, generosity, amnesty, and spirituality. Those are the foundational principles for nation building, to make a healthy community of faith. And I think when I look at this, I go, it's really elegant and incredibly humanitarian. It's radical for the time especially what we noted last week in their worship. Remember when it was talking about the poor and the slave and the indentured, the one who is in debt? Even the, the idea of the foreigner taking care of them. All of that was radical for the time. It was not common for the Egyptians to be sitting around going, hey, maybe we should figure out how to forgive everybody's debts. Maybe we should figure out how to love these foreign Hebrews in our midst. we are like, now how do we enslave them more? How do we do this? But God is now putting together a, a whole new idea. And it's going to develop and evolve over the course of time, but he's laying an initial foundation. So it's really, really incredible. Uh, The question is, what could muck it up, right? What could really cause this whole thing to, to fall about, fall apart and just not work? I think the simple answer is God comes up with this really cool design and then he delegates it to people. That's always the Achilles heel, right? It's we human beings that are like the weakest link in the brilliant ideas that God puts forth. See, Moses knows this. And so Moses has particular thoughts about this. And that is why today week four is about the leaders. It's gone from the principles to the worship, now to the leaders. And in the realm of the Ten Commandments, he's still unpacking the Ten Commandments. So worship was the first four. Now we're getting into the fifth commandment. The fifth commandment is about honoring your father and mother. But if you get under that, it's about authority structures. And so he's practicalizing how the authority structure Is going to exist in this particular land And so he deals with the problem and the subject And the issues and the needs of leaders Now here's what I want to say about leadership It's hard I've been in an executive leadership position For like 30 years now It's really hard But you know what else is hard? Following leaders It's hard on you all to do that I get it It's a tricky deal right? Uh, There's all kinds of things that can happen. Making decisions is hard, but following through on decisions that are made for you, that's just as hard. And sometimes, you know what, when you're organizing human beings, things are just messy. Some leaders can be too strong, and some leaders can be too weak. Some leaders can be too understanding, and some leaders can be not understanding at all. Some show favoritism, and they shouldn't, and others don't show favoritism, and maybe they should. Like, that's always the challenge and the trick. And so this happens because all leaders, and I'm just letting you know, are incredibly human, fallible, broken, insecure, weak, foolish, proud, arrogant, you name it. All of that gets thrown into the batch. So in that sense, I think Moses knows that this is going to be tough. God's got a killer plan, and people are dumb. So He gives some warnings and some reminders and some advanced notice, right? And so he's going to give the political structure of Israel. And in Israel, it has basically four fundamental offices, which is not unlike us. Like, if you really boil down to the United States, we have a president, we have Congress, we have the judiciary, and then we have, like, governors because we're a federation of states. And then underneath that you have all the sub-leaders and duties and politicians and everything else, all the way down to our own little community. Amy Aucklander is our our kind of our chief person in charge around here as far as for the civic side of things. And so we understand that structure. In Israel, they also had four offices. They had the basically the the judges or the judiciary, right? Justices in that sense. And then they had kings, and then they had prophets, and they had priests. Those four groups. And those four designations, not radical, not new, super common to the region, everybody had those. But there's a difference in what God prescribes to this nation with this group that's very different than the others. See, with the others, here's how it worked. Those four groups, from them flowed all of the rules and regulations, the standards. It was top-down. So the powers that be could decide whatever policies they wanted. They were not submissive to something above them. It was just generated from them. And the problem there is just on a whim, a king could say, I'm doing this today, and I said that yesterday, but I don't care. We're doing a new thing. Super, super just unpredictable, destabilizing, challenging to a culture when you have the power structures just deciding what they're going to do and not do. But God gives to Israel a plan that is hundreds of years, like, it, like advanced. Like, eventually, when you get to the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, they started saying, hey, we are under a unified law. But at this point, it was like, no, law flows from the leaders, and now God says, no, I want the leaders to be bound by the instruction, by the code, by the Torah. And so that's his heart. And so in some ways, it's very similar to our own civics, right? We have a constitution that everybody's supposed to submit to, right? Right. But in some ways, that also highlights the problem. God's going to create a really awesome design, and the leaders are going to struggle with it, just as our founders had a great design, and our leaders struggle with it to this day. And both sides of the aisle— And not just in politics. It happens in business. It happens in churches. It happens in educational models where there are policies, rules, bylaws, constitutions that everybody should do, but then everybody decides to do what's right in their own eyes and try to work the system and get ahead and do their their own little jam at the cost of others, and that's always the danger. But nonetheless, God is still setting the intention. I think understanding that for us is really valuable because then it lets us know, as followers of Jesus who are called to pray for our leaders— we know what to pray for. We can pray, we understand how tempting it is to get things done. We understand that there's always gonna be a pressure to skirt the system, work around the rules. Jesus helped them to be strong, like we can pray that way. It's also good for us to remember, hey, we should want to maintain a high standard for all that we support, all that we endorse, all that we vote for, all that we put our energy behind, like kind of realizing like that's gotta be important to us as well. And I think above all else, it's the reality that we are all somebody under some authority somewhere, and we want to be the types of people that honor that, even if that isn't always honorable. Because that's what Jesus calls us to. And so, let's jump right into the theme that is near and dear to the heart of God as he's putting this all together. It's kind of the first theme that I think really appears in the section, and it's the theme of justness. Or justice In fact if you're taking notes this morning It's number one in your notes The primacy of honest justices God seeks good judges And it's interesting Because if you were to do a word count Of the heapsures And you were to look for how many times words come up You'd see some words come up a ton And other words very little and some none at all For example if you do a complete scan of the Hebrew text You will never find the word Google Because it ain't there Everyday word for us wasn't there for them If you look up the word unicorn Nine times actually You know that There's unicorns in the Hebrew scripture Now I know every heart is a flutter Now there's unicorns There was unicorns at one point Unicorn as opposed to two horns It's not as fun I know but unicorns are in the Hebrew text But if you were to find the top words Connected to virtue and calling And responsibility Here's your top five Number five is righteous, number four is love, number three is kindness, but number two is justice. Number one is holiness, right? In the realm of virtue, this uncommon holy distinctive is the number one priority, but very close, deeply close, number two is justice or justness. God cares about this subject deeply, and not just kind of the uh, get even, keep law justice. No, it's this idea of fairness. It's trying to figure out how everybody gets an equal share of the pie of the justness in a system, that's the heart. Because here's the thing, if you think justice is just about laws, there's been many laws that are unjust. That's not God's heart, God isn't about unjust laws, God's about true justness for all. Thus, he says this, appoint judges and officials for yourselves from each of your tribes in all the towns the Lord your God is giving to you. They must judge people fairly. You must never twist justice or show partiality, never accept a bribe for bribes, blind the eyes of the wise and corrupt the decisions of the godly. Let true justice prevail so that you may live and occupy the land that the Lord your God is giving to you. You say, great, how do we do this? He says, Well, choose some well respected men from each tribe who are known for their wisdom and understanding, and I will appoint them as your leaders. This is what Moses is saying. So I took the wise and respected men you had elected from your tribes and appointed them to serve as judges and officials over you. Some were responsible for 1,000 people, some for 100, some for 50, some for 10. Kind of like federal to local, right? You get the idea there. And I love this because if you augment it then with some other instruction about justices in the book of Exodus, you see this position sketch of judicial character. The judicial character is there to be chosen, well-respected, wise, understanding, fear God, capable, honest, objective, and they hate bribes. So no super PACs, right? No corporations or the rich that buy votes, you know? It's like, let them stay away from all of that. See, what I like about this, or at least I find interesting from a civics perspective, the first thing is that they're chosen by the people. So our whole, we the people that we think are so new, like the ancient Hebrews are like, yeah, been there, done that, got the bumper sticker, the keychain We did that a long time ago, we the people, right? But it means the judges are not appointed by kings, which could show favoritism. It's meant to be the people kind of bottom up to say, hey, here's the people we think are of value. The other thing I love about this is what are the kinds of people that you want to grant power to? This list is not about people with skill, or success, or a proven track record, or ability. This is about people of reliable character. That's what the list is about. And here's what I dig about this. Um, This week, there was some cool local news. The Seahawks have a new coach, right? Mike McDonald, I already have a hard man crush on this dude. I'm loving this guy. Right? I'm just an early adopter, easy sucker, who knows? Who knows how it's gonna turn out? But he was doing this press conference this week, and one of the reporters said, hey, so who are you looking for in an offensive coordinator? Is it gonna be somebody that's good at the X's and O's, has a winning track record, comes from other NFL teams, maybe a college team, has a great scheme? And his answer was brilliant. He said, all of that stuff, it's not high on the list. You're like, what? Playmakers and play callers are not high on your list? He says, no, here's what he said. He says, we want somebody with high character, integrity, a growth mindset, connects with people and can bring clarity. He's like, whether they've ever done this before or not is not the big idea. And I'm like, that is brilliant because that's kind of like the heart here, right? It's not so much whether they have this kind of, you know, like college degree in being a judge, It's like, do they have the character to care about people and do right things and ward off the wrong things, right? Because here's the thing. Too often in our own culture, what happens? We gravitate to the charisma maybe more than the actual character. We want to make sure they have ability more than if they bring stability. It's what they can do versus who they are, right? Right? What we should care about more for all leaders, church leaders, business leaders, civic leaders, national leaders, whatever it is, any leader, is we should care about who they are in private, who they are in their family, who they are in their home, who they are in their heart. We should look and go, I would entrust the most precious people in my life to the care of this person and what they do and how they do it. They, my, my, my kids would be safe with this person emotionally, physically psychologically personally like that should be the heart that we use and I kind of bring this up because let's be honest we're going into the 2024 election and it does not matter if you're on the left or the right here's what both sides are doing they're looking at each other like when you're hanging out having a beer drinking coffee whatever else you do you look at each other and you go is this the best set of options we can create in our society of all the persons, all of the things, all of the ideas, all the stuff out there, these are the best that we can provide? And we all go, probably not. But what tends to happen is we go, but whoever has the most gravitas, or whoever has the most power, or whoever has the most chance, or whatever else, and we just don't, we almost come to the point of, we don't really have much expectation of the most profound character in this arena. And it doesn't necessarily display itself in the most profound character. And I get that that's the way the system's gonna work, but sometimes we just sort of surrender to that. It is what it is. So we don't expect much, and so we don't get much. That's always gonna be the risk. We, we should never surrender that. Like uh, We used to say character matters, character doesn't matter, now just getting stuff done matters. Policy matters. We should still, even though, again, you might have to hold your nose and vote for whatever you vote for, whatever it is, we should still make a big deal about, hey, God cares about the character of our leaders. Don't just blow it off. No, hold it up, and then grieve, be sad, pray for something different. Now, that doesn't mean in this process we need to be difficult about that, but it does mean we need to be consistent. We should be consistent, because God seeks consistency in his judges, right? And that's a part of their purview, consistency. He says, at the time I instructed the judges— You must hear the case of your fellow Israelites and foreigners that live among you. Be perfectly fair in your decisions and impartial in your judgments. Hear the case of those who are poor as well as those who are rich. Don't be afraid of anyone's anger, for the decision you make is God's decision. He says, Let true justice prevail so that you may live and occupy the land the Lord your God is giving to you. Here's what's important here. While he says, Make sure you're impartial, Moses also goes out of his way to say, But keep in mind, what it means to be impartial is recalling that justice is actually for everybody. It's meant for everybody, it's meant for the foreigner and the poor as much as the citizen and the rich. Because here's the thing I've learned over the course of life. If you have, and then you're in trouble, you have better resources than you don't have, and you're in trouble. That's gonna be just true. I had a friend of mine that recently went through a really difficult legal thing where he was accused of something that he didn't do. And he goes, the one thing I realized is I'm glad that I have wealth, because I probably wouldn't have won and I was innocent. Right, And as kind of the reminder, what he's saying here is don't get all clouded by you favor the rich and you forget the poor and you favor the citizen and you forget the foreigner. No, you have to remember this is an incredibly clear theme for God on justness. It's all through the Hebrew scriptures and it's in the ministry of Jesus. He pushed this time and again. And to be inconsistent is to lose the heart of God. To be inconsistent and you favor the powerful and the privileged overlooks the image bearers of God. Jesus even talks about this in Matthew 25, He's like, you know, the lowly, the outcast, the imprisoned, the forgotten. When you forget them, you forget me. I mean, it is confronting, but it's a good reminder, right? Even for Israel, it's a good reminder that God's blessing on them rises or falls based on whether they do this well, whether they actually embody this idea of respecting God's image in the rich, the powerful, and the positioned, as well as the poor, the powerless. And the disenfranchised All of that matters And So this is why I think Before God talks about a king He talks about justices Because he cares about true justness Now on their culture As, as in ours uh, the, You know the spheres Of this judicial authority Breaks down different lines In our world There's two different spheres There is kind of the civic sphere Of kind of being judicious And then there's the Ecclesiastical side of being judicious As, As a country we talk about church and state We don't want the state making rules for the church And in many ways what you don't want Is a single state church thing We want some kind of division in there You can debate that But we do kind of appreciate that But in Israel it's a true theocracy So their judicial system doesn't break down those lines, it breaks down different lines where basically everything falls under the one umbrella. So the same justices that deal with doctrinal problems are the same justices that deal with civil problems. And so from this, Moses needs to kind of help them understand how to navigate this, and so he literally gives them a case study. And that's number two in your notes. We're going to see how the wheels of justice work when it comes to the justices that are assigned. He says, When you be living in the towns the Lord your God is giving you, a man or a woman uh, that might come among you and do evil in the sight of the Lord your God and violate the covenant. For instance, they may serve other gods or worship the sun, the moon, the stars, whatever it is, the forces of heaven that I have strictly forbidden. When you hear about it, the man or woman that has committed such an evil act must be taken to the gates of the town and stoned to death. The witness must throw the first stone, and then all the other people may join in, like it's a water balloon fight now. Just join in, right? In this way, you will purge the evil from among you. Now, you might look at that and go, dude, that does not sound measured, level-headed, or judicious to me. Sounds like a flash mob with a box of rocks. It's like the purge. But look at the full text. I didn't read the full text. Here's what it says. When you hear about it, investigate the matter thoroughly If it is true that that detestable thing has been done in Israel, then the man or woman who has committed such an evil act must be taken to the gates of the town and stoned to death. But never put a person to death on the testimony of only one witness. There must always be two or three witnesses. The witnesses must throw the first, or whatever the witnesses were, they must throw the first stones, and then all the people may join in. In this way, you will purge the evil from among you. Now, you may not see what's there, but you know what that is? some of the earliest example of due process. That's what it is. And it's very progressive, right? Because what you don't see here is just like, hey man, have a snap judgment. Just believe the hearsay or think the worst. He says first, investigate the matter thoroughly. Right? Can I tell you that's a value of us today too? It is, man. Because so often we tend to trust our sources and doubt other sources or we don't fully vet sources or we don't fully look into things or we just read a headline and make an assessment. Or we hear some little blip and then we go, that's the full story. We can be so good at not thoroughly investigating. Just giving in to the flash mob of whatever it is. And he says, no, you gotta stop and fully investigate. You wanna have an intentional response, not an impulsive reaction. So stop investigate second he says make sure there are two and honestly three witnesses three witnesses that say it's fact not hearsay gossip speculation no they saw it they witnessed it you want multiple sources to corroborate the evidence in fact what's cool is later in uh, chapter 19 he says and if a witness perjures themselves because they're spiteful vengeful they don't they want their neighbor dead or whatever it is and you find out they're lying, whatever the punishment is for what they're accusing, that is what they will suffer. You wanna get rid of frivolous lawsuits? That's how you do it, right? We'll just do to them what they're accusing you of if we find out they're lying. Brilliant, brilliant. But then there is the added extra weight, which is if you bring this accusation, you will be the first one to function as the executioner. You as witnesses, you better be so sure you're willing to take your neighbor's life. You better be positive you saw it because the blood's on your hands and if you're making anything up, blood's on your hands. God sees that, God knows it. So it's incredibly profound. Now you might look at this and go, but why does the whole town have to be executioner at this point? Well, what God is trying to get them to realize is that, you know what, they're a symbiotic nation. The people are connected to the land, the land is connected to the people, and the offense of one will affect all. Therefore, all must be engaged in the offense of the one to remind them that they are a collective unit. And their solo sin isn't just going to go solo and not affect everybody else. And that is a really important value again for me. When I think about lessons learned, where I go, we can tend to think, my sin just affects me. It doesn't affect anybody else. I find that most often our sin, even if it's private, somehow seeps out and affects others. And oftentimes, the sin that affects others, I get over it faster than they do. And that's the problem. So God's just reminding, man, sin affects the community, so make sure you don't go down that road. Now, God also knows that discerning guilt and innocence can be kind of complicated sometimes, like it is today. Like, we have DNA and sherlock holmes and whatever we got right we have all kinds of great tools and it's still hard but god knows it's going to be hard for them and so he gives the hebrew version of the supreme court he says suppose though a case arises in a local court that is too hard for you to decide for instance whether someone is guilty of murder or only of manslaughter it's a difficult lawsuit you can't figure out who's guilty who's to blame who did something wrong what about assault other things He says, with this, take such legal cases to the place the Lord your God will choose and present them to the Levitical priest or the judge that is on duty at that time. They will hear the case and declare the verdict. You must carry out the verdict they announce and the sentence they prescribe at the place the Lord chooses. You must do exactly as they say. So just so you get a sense of this, the lower court does the due diligence. They have the due process. They have all of the facts, the witnesses, everything, but they can't decide. You take all of that to the higher court. And the higher court has to decide based on that. So they're not reinventing the case. They take that and they go, what do you guys think? The good news is it takes the pressure off the local community from rendering a difficult decision. So they don't have to be the ones to blame for that. The tough part is it removes their authority over it too. So once it goes up the chain, whatever's decided, you must execute exactly. You can't amend it. It says after they've interpreted the law and declared their verdict, the sentence they impose must be fully executed and do not modify it in any way. Anyone arrogant enough to reject the verdict of the judge or of the priest who represents the Lord your God, they must die. Man, people, lots of get, people getting whacked if they mess this up. In this way, you will purge the evil from Israel. Then everyone else will hear about it and be afraid to act so arrogantly. So it's a checks and balances. Right? The higher court can't just take a case from the lower court. They have to receive it. But the, the lower court can't deny the higher court's decision. All of this is to preserve justice in new eden now what's interesting to me is justices are not the only possible leading body there might come a time where the people go we want an executive leader a sole person to really guide us and so Moses is like, okay let's give another piece of advice here it's the guidance for a king which is the third thing in your notes the guidance for a king and to be clear just so you get this god doesn't want israel to have a king he will warn them for Samuel's like listen If you take on a king, it's because you're dumb, you're selfish, you're foolish, and you don't even know what you're getting into. I'm meant to be your king. This is a theodicy, a theocracy rather. This is to be the thing where I rule you, that's it, but you might be so dumb as to want one. I think this is odd because what we're going to read here is basically a concession. It's not a prescription, right? It's not advisement. It's not the ideal. It's Moses writing a regulation for a sin. Like, if you guys get into the sin of wanting a king, well, at least we're going to create some rules for this. Matter of fact, I was thinking about this. I'm like, this is so weird. It's like God says, don't. But if you do the don't, do the don't well. That's kind of what it is. I'm telling you, don't get a king. But if you do get a king, do the dumb don't as well as you can. And that seems weird, because it seems like God is now kind of giving a concession to sin. But I think this is a little bit showing the wisdom of Mosaic instruction, and it's a little bit like when you say to your teenager, listen, don't get drunk, don't drink. But if you do, don't drive. It's kind of like that kind of wisdom. It seems strange, but that's really what's going down here. And so, with this, he's like, make sure you practice your sin Wisely if you go down the road of a king Since you're about to enter the land of the lord your god has given to you when you take it over and settle there You may think we should select a king to rule over us like the other nations around us because all the nations around us are so smart If this happens be sure to a Select a king the man the lord your god chooses and b you must appoint a fellow israelite He may not be a foreigner so basically he's saying, if we decide to saddle up our jackass and run down disobedience drive, make sure God chooses the dude and he has a Hebrew birth certificate. That's all that matters. Let God be a part of the process and let it be one of our people. But then there's more. It says, The king must not build up a large stable of horses for himself or the people, uh, for his people go down to Egypt and buy the horses. For the Lord has said, You must never return to Egypt. He must not take many wives for himself Because they will turn his heart away from the Lord And he must not accumulate large amounts Of wealth in silver or gold For himself Did you see it? B Makes me snort laugh I read that I'm like And he may not take many wives for himself (laughs) Right? Like that's just weird Like what is many wives? I've got one wife A second wife would be too many wives, right? I'm I'm reading this, and I'm like, well, who decides how many is many wives for the king? It's like my man Amos over there says five is many, and then my man Habakkuk over there says seven is many. Who's deciding how many wives? How come this text doesn't say, when it comes to the king and wives, he gets one wife? That would be really clear, but it doesn't say that i got to be honest, I I, I find the polygamy stuff in the Bible weird. I really do, right? Like, I look at this and I'm like, well, well, it seems like you could just kind of say it clearly. And then when you have your kings, they had three kings before the nation had a civil war and split and went north and south and everything else. The first one, Saul, had one wife. And then he had a concubine. So apparently then it's considered two. And maybe there's others, but they're not listed. And then David's like, well, I'm going to double down on that. He had at least eight wives. And more concubines than we have a number four and then his kid's like ah watch this dad hold my beer check this out and he has 700 wives and 300 concubines i'm not sure what many is at that point apparently it's enough that it got bad but maybe if you had just a few it'd be okay i don't know sometimes like i said the hebrew text is kind of weird i don't know what to do with all of it but here's what i do know about this section here it's not about horses and women and money Here's what it's getting at, if you get the principle underneath it. The kings are first forbidden from military reserves that risk their humility. The many horses is a standing army. So it's like the Hebrew industrial complex. He's like, no, you cannot have a standing army because remember it's Lord your God that gives you the victory. And if you start building up an army, you think it's you that brings the victory, not the Lord. And then of course it's also forbidding political alliances that risk the king's fidelity. The many wives was connected to treaties that would be made between different leaders. The way you made a treaty is, you can marry my daughter, I'm gonna marry your daughter, or some member of the court. And now we're we're, we're aligned. But the problem there is, you're gonna start mixing bloodlines, and you're gonna start mixing ideologies, and it's gonna pull the king's heart away from the things of the Lord. And then last, it's forbidden for the king to have financial security that risks his dependency. That goes back to Deuteronomy 8. You're gonna think, you did it, you earned it, it's yours. King can't have any of those things. So what will help with this? It says, when he sits on the throne as king, he must copy for himself the body of instruction on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priest. So he must write out Deuteronomy. He must always keep that copy with him and read it daily as long as he lives. That way he will learn to fear the Lord as God by obeying all the terms of these instructions and decrees. What it's saying there is this is the equivalent of the king going to the blackboard and writing 1,000 times, I will not be a stupid, foolish, dumb, disobedient king. Just to lock it in So he writes out Deuteronomy Shoves it in his like I don't know robe pocket And then every day he reads it He reads it And why does he read it? it? Says this regular reading will prevent him from becoming proud And acting as if he was above his fellow citizens It will prevent him from turning away from these commands In the smallest way It will ensure that he and his descendants Will reign for many generations In Israel See what's great about this is for the most part kings were seen as divine and the givers of laws But here this king is seen as human and he's subject to the law And most kings were to rule over citizens This king is actually to be the model of the ideal citizen for all people displaying responsibility and consistency and stability And that's to be true for all executive leaders, right? All the people that we want to submit to We want them to be the very best of us That should be our objective. Now what's sad is that all kings fail. In Israel, they all somehow failed. In our world, kings fail. The only king to ever succeed is Jesus. He's the only one that ever pulled it off. And when you look at his kingship, you see what he modeled, it's so different than other kings. He modeled love and grace and acceptance over judgment. He showed gentleness and lowliness and restfulness. He engaged in peacemaking and forgiveness and service. In fact, the only leader I would say we should ever revere is Jesus and anybody that seeks to emulate Jesus. Or as Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Because Jesus is the only king that has ever had sustained, lasting success in his kingship. 2,000 years later, it's only spreading. And notice how he did it he did it without an elite standing army, he did it without a coalition of nations, and he did it without a vast financial war chest. He wrote Deuteronomy in his soul, which is why Jesus quotes Deuteronomy more than any other book. Right? Because he did what the king's supposed to do. He wrote it. He embedded it. He lived it. He modeled it. He demonstrated the best of us to us, fulfilling the great commandment and giving us the great commission. He's the true king. Next, lightning round here. Number what three four three somewhere in the the notes we're looking to the perks and purposes of the priests all right here he talks about the levitical priests another layer of their leadership and he says this group is of the whole tribe of israel they receive no allotment of the land among the other tribes of israel instead the priests and the levites they eat from the special gifts given to the lord that they share so it's that tithe we talked about last time they receive from that and they do all of this and they make sure to do what they're supposed to do, which is they are to minister in the Lord's name forever to all the other tribes of Israel. And this one I understand because this is kinda of my life, right? I, I rely on all of you for my, my welfare, my annual salary, my substance in this life. Right? I depend on you just as the priests depended on them. And they had a job to do as they were reliant on and relied upon. fact the priestly ministries where they represented god led worship they taught and instructed they were the supreme justices and the military hype men they would get out to the military kind of like the cheerleaders of israel like oh guys you can get them you can get them now we're going to stand back here go get them right they were kind of that but when you look at the structure the justices were about defense which is preventing injustice the priests were about offense which was kind of creating righteousness and holiness and then the king was like a player coach Watch me as we do this together, right? So God is just creating a collective. But even in this collective, he tells the priest, there's some things that are forbidden for you to do in your job, right? It's the forbidden tools of the trade. He says, when you enter the land of the Lord your God that he's giving to you, be careful not to imitate the other nations, like, we want a king, Right? It says, don't imitate them. For example, never sacrifice your sons or daughters as burnt offerings. And don't let your people practice fortune telling, use sorcery, interpret omens, engage in witchcraft, cast spells, function as mediums or psychics. Call forth spirits from the dead. You must be blameless before the Lord your God. In other words, no Hogwarts. Can't have Hogwarts in Israel. Can't do it. But what we lose is that these were the tools of the trade of leadership back in their day. So in our day, we use strategists, and analytics, and spin, and pulling data, and PR firms, and focus groups, and projections, right, to get stuff done. This is what they use to get stuff done. And God's like, you're not gonna do it that way. You have to do it different. You have to think different, be different, act different, upside down and backwards, right? Because that's what he's building in their world, right? And I think this is really important because what we wanna bring is the tools of Jesus's trade to what we do, right? We want to unite versus divide. We want to use peace versus conflict, grace versus judgment, forgiveness versus resentment. We want to show it's God over money. We want to show that it's this idea of being last to be first. All of those things are like the tools of our trade that show how we do things different, that we show how corporate life and civil life and social life and political life, educational life, familial life, financial life, neighborly life is better with Jesus doing it his way. That is what we do, being different, being different. Then there is the last group The authentication of prophets Moses continued The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me From among your fellow Israelites You must listen to him I will put my words in his mouth And he will tell the people everything I command him I will personally deal with everyone Who will not deal with the message of the prophet That proclaims my, on my behalf rather But any prophet who falsely claims to speak my name Or who speaks in the name of another God They must die Again, very Quentin Tarantino the Hebrew Testament is Here's a fun fact about this. I think it's kind of interesting. Uh, does anybody know the very first prophet to ever actually speak after Moses said this? Not a dude. lady was Deborah." Which I think is funny. He's like, listen to him. Like, Moses, it's going to be her, the first one. Oh, I didn't see that coming. All right. Listen to her then. It's an egalitarian statute for an egalitarian office. There was both male and female prophets throughout the history of Israel. So he says, "Listen to true prophets. But when it comes to the false prophets, you just want to fast-track them for additions in the afterlife worship choir or something like just move them on. Right? That's what you do. He says, but you may wonder, how will we know whether or not a prophecy is from the Lord? He says, if the prophet speaks in the Lord's name, but his prediction does not happen or does not come true, you'll know the Lord did not give that message. The prophet has spoken without my authority and need not be feared. Now what's weird is in back in chapter 13 he says, listen, sometimes you're gonna have dreamers and visionaries. They get it right, but then want to lead you wrong. And then here he says, and then you have others who get it wrong, even though their intention may be wrong or right, we don't know, but they, they get it wrong. Both are a risk, right? And so he's saying, you have to be wise about both. Here's what this means for us, just really fast. It means we have to be wise. Uh, we have to have discernment. When we hear things. You don't want to go to the extreme of being cynical, but you also don't want to go to the extreme of being gullible. Jesus said, be wise as a serpent, gentle as a dove. That puts us in tension. Does I always have to do my homework? I always have to be thoughtful. I always have to be prayerful and mindful of what I'm hearing, right? Because there's always gonna be something That either loosens the truth Or frankly tightens the truth too much You can have stuff that's so tight It disregards all other actual God things Because they think their thing is the only thing That is just as dangerous that somebody says Nothing counts, everything's open He's like, you have to be wise You have to discern With gentleness and wisdom So now that I've gone way too long Let's see we figure out where Deuteronomy meets real life Questions for us, diagnostics First, God cares for a justice of equity for all. Do I share and advocate for his vision of justness? Number two, God places character before competency or capacity. Do I share his vision for character first? Third, God commands slow, thorough, and cross examined approaches to weighty verdicts. Do I draw rash or wise conclusions? And then fourth, God calls for discernment regarding truth. Do I strive for Jesus-centered living Between critical and gullible Let's go ahead and pray together Jesus That was a lot I know it was a lot But I thank you that Your man Moses gives us so much On this critical thing Of how leadership happens in our world And I pray that we have the heart For your leadership and leaders Moreover Jesus I thank you That you are a king that came as a servant As a slave to give us life that you are the ultimate coach player. And so right now, as we prepare for our time of communion, we want to honor you, love you, respect you, think upon you, thank you for the fact that you gave your body, shed your blood for us. Help us to be uh, kind of embodiments of you in our world and to honor you in all that we do. So we prepare our hearts before you now for communion and we look to you in your grace and your good name. Amen.